Save big money on your next project with help from Menards. Move water where you need it quickly with a Barracuda sump pump. Sump pumps keep your basement dry when big storms hit unexpectedly. Get a half-horsepower cast iron Barracuda sump pump on sale now through May 5th. Hurry into Menards and don't forget to check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. Basic Instinct made Sharon Stone a superstar. At 56, she is an iconic beauty, an Oscar nominee who starred with some of Hollywood's biggest leading men and worked with some of the greatest filmmakers of our time. In 2001, she suffered a brain aneurysm and says it was like a death. Her marriage crumbled. There was an ugly public custody battle. And yet, Sharon survived all of it. Despite all her success and living a glamorous Hollywood life, her fondest memories are about growing up in Western Pennsylvania with a tough but loving father who taught her early lessons about how to truly be herself. Everybody has a story, and there is something to be learned from every experience. Use your life as a class. This is Masterclass with Sharon Stone. I grew up in the teeniest little town in Pennsylvania, literally so small that kids drove their tractors to school in the morning after they did their chores. Lots of people were hunters, and they were hunters because that's how we ate. That's how we survived. My father shot a deer. I would come home and the deer would be <laughs> hanging on my swing set. You know, I was always kind of Miss Peace, Peace and Love, and I couldn't I couldn't relate to it at all. But my father understood that about me, and he took me walking in the woods and taught me how to walk silently in the woods. I remember so specifically walking through the woods in the fall. We walked up to the sleeping deer, and my father and I were just looking at beautiful with the spots on the deer, and then he went <whistles> And the deer just jumped, and it jumped right over us. And it was just amazing. And I get very full of, just full when I talk about my dad. My father was a gentle man. Not a gentleman, a gentle man. When my mother walked into the room, in the living room, my father stood up for her. My mother swears like a sailor. I mean, sometimes I'm just like, mom. But if someone swears in front of my mother, my father was always like, excuse me? Don't, you don't talk like that in front of a lady. The power of that committed love. They didn't throw each other away. They didn't throw things away. They took care of their belongings. They took care of their home. They took care of us. And it is this combination of these characters that I think has given me tremendous fortitude in my life. My father came from Oil City, Pennsylvania, which was where the first oil wells ever drilled in the world were. They were the original oil drillers and an extraordinarily wealthy family. So he began his life in a very luxurious fashion. But then my great uncle, ended up gambling 
away the family fortune in very short order. And so my father quit school in the seventh grade and went to work. And he became a very tough guy, very tough taskmaster, very regimented, very driven, I think, to be the perfect father if I wanted anything or wanted to go anywhere or do anything. I had to know why. If I wanted to go to the movies, why do you want to see this movie? Why this one? And if I could explain myself, I could go. But I had to explain myself. He was such a contradiction. He was a factory worker, yet he was very sophisticated thinker, very well read for a person who had no education. And he was a feminist, which was very unusual. He would do things like I would be out playing and he would call me in and say, you know, Sharon, you're letting those boys beat you so they'll like you. Get out there and win because you can. And if they're going to like you, they will. And of course, that wasn't true. <laughs> that wasn't true. But he did teach me to be the best that I could be. And that is a lesson that you don't always get to have as a woman. You know, I have three kids, so all kids are different, and everybody does everything differently, but I think my differently has, it was a little different. You know, some kids are very childlike when they're children, and some kids are just like, hey, I'm like an adult, and I was just like that. And I think it was just very alarming for my mother to be talking to a very short, tiny little adult who was having structured, thoughtful, wise conversation. <laughs> she, she took me to the county courthouse to see why I was so different. I think when I was about four, four and a half, I remember going to the courthouse and they gave me a bunch of tests. I just had a, an exceptionally high IQ. I started school in the second grade when I was five years old. So I was this very little kid with eight-year-olds with kind of big thoughts. And then they thought, well, she's doing all this, but she's not fitting in emotionally or socially. Well, let's put her back in first grade. And I was still a little child, still five, somewhere, going down the hall like, what did I do wrong? By the time we're in fourth grade, they were doing these programs. Mensa came into the school and picked a bunch of us out and put us for fourth, fifth, and sixth in these programs. And once you get with these kind of super intelligent people, people do peculiar things who are super intelligent. One of the boys was eccentric, and he used to eat light bulbs. And he did all these weird tricks, and he would show how he could eat a light bulb. So the light bulb eater didn't make it to go to college in the end. It was these three boys and me. So I was off to college at 15, and I'm still really little in college. I think about, in a way, how terrific it was for me because it prepared me for this sort of abnormal life, which has become my norm, which was that socially I was never in a regular situation. I was never in a regular scenario. I was never schooled, raised, taught with all the regular things happening at the regular time for me. I was always in some sort of unusual circumstance and being prepared to live an unusual circumstantial life. 
because that was my destiny. And though at some times I thought, I need to somehow figure that out so that I can be regular. I didn't and I don't because this is my regular. And it's okay to be who exactly you are because each one of those steps that are happening to you in your life, no matter how peculiar they seem at the time, are terrific because they're preparing you for exactly who you're meant to be. Well, my first film possibility happened when I was at the Miss Pennsylvania pageant, she says. <laughs> Muhammad Ali was also doing some kind of appearance there. And he called my parents and offered me a part in the movie The Greatest. And my dad was like, no way. <laughs> no way are you going to be in movies at this point in your career, or at your age. No point at this age are you going to be in movies. Or he didn't want me to be in movies at all, let's be honest. He thought this whole movie idea I had was like... But I was like, oh, somebody sees it. Somebody sees that I could be in movies. It was such a validation for me. Coming from my small town, being an actress was someone akin to saying, I want to be an astronaut. You know, I'm going to go walk on the moon. But I was always so interested in the arts. And my Aunt Vaughn, she was painting everything all the time and reading everything all the time. And I lived with she and my grandmother every summer. They were amazing. They just come and kind of steal me. And my aunt had painted all over the walls in my grandmother's house these spectacular murals. She was so beautiful. You know, she, gorgeous. She kind of looked like a Spanish dancer, this black hair and red lipstick and... She was like a legendary beauty. She had this gigantic round table in the kitchen, and everyone would sit at the kitchen table and talk, and I would get under the kitchen table and listen to all these amazing conversations and just be, oh, I thought they were so glamorous. These ladies and their silk hose with the heel guard and the seam up the back of the hose and their whole thing and their shenanigans. I thought they were just uh, really something. I just painted all the time with them and did all these fabulous, great creative things with them and read amazing books and had this whole other kind of life with these great ladies. And I think that really was such a formative part of my life. And I think she made it okay for me to have this dream the secret dream of being an actress. And it's weird to say, I know, but I knew I was gonna be a movie star, not just an actress. I knew that a movie star was part of my destiny. And it's almost like you're not supposed to say that. It's like saying you're attractive. You're not supposed to say that. It's like you're not supposed to say these things. But I knew it. When I left for New York to be an actress, my father gave me this little cutout from the newspaper about Mickey Mantle, who had the most runs batted in. And it said he also had the most strikeouts. And he said, don't ever forget this. And I, I taped it in the front of my appointment book. And I carried it with me for like 20 years because I knew it didn't matter how many times I struck out. 
I just got to keep hitting it and hitting it. I had a lot of strikeouts before I hit one out of the park. Save big money and start your spring project with help from Menards. We offer a huge selection of body plants, veggies, and herbs to plant at home and grow yourself. Right now, all four and a half inch body plants are on sale through May 5th. Head to the Menards Garden Center to get your garden growing and check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. I was in acting class and I had an amazing teacher, Roy London, and I was working on these scenes and I was I was having a really hard time and I I'd done everything and he called me up and he said, you know, that's it. You've done all the scenes. You've graduated. And I was so upset. And I was like, but I, I haven't, Roy. I, I haven't. I didn't get it. I know I haven't gotten it. And then he said, I want you to go home and I want you not to work on it. And I was like, what do you mean? He says, you just, you overwork everything. Just don't work on it. Just don't work on it. You're just trying too hard. Stop with the trying. You know, that I just was not in myself. I was like over trying, over trying. And I went home and I came back and I was just in myself. And I just did the scene like And the scene ended and there was just silence in the classroom. And he turned around at the chair and looked at the class. And he looked back at me and he goes, well, what have we learned? And I went, that I'm enough. And I would say it was probably two weeks later that I got cast in Basic Instinct. I was able to go to the set, which was not an easy set, and it was not an easy part to get. They offered it to 12 or 13 other women who turned it down. So it wasn't like I got there and everyone was like, yay, she's here. It was like, mm. But I knew, walking on that set, that I was enough. I was obsessed with Magic Johnson. Obsessed. And I would go to those games and watch him play and watch him play. That no-look pass, the way he knew where everyone was on the court, and he trusted his teammates. He knew he wasn't the whole game. He knew that every one of his team members was going to be expansive enough to click into each other. When I was going to do Basic Instinct, I knew Michael Douglas was expansive. I knew he was there. We were so locked in because we knew we trusted each other. We were in the game. You can do the no-look pass. This just gets back to the trust thing. It's already in the room. Just let it happen. That's championship playing. You want to be a champion? Let the things that are already there work for you. When we got to Cannes with Basic Instinct, and I got out of the car, and I started walking down that very wide red carpet, and like thousands of people started screaming in, in French, Cheron, Cheron. And I looked up, and it had happened. I didn't feel panicky or nervous. I suddenly felt like, oh, okay. Like, okay, great. Like, oh. like I, it's, we're, we're here. I'm 
in my destiny. On a Friday, I was a basically relatively unknown working actress. On a Tuesday, I was driving on Sunset Boulevard and I stopped at a red light and people climbed all over my car, literally all over my car. And the light changed and the traffic didn't move and people were blowing their horns and I was in my car alone and I just didn't know what to do. Do you blow your horn? Do you drive? Do you scream? Do you lay on the floor? What does one do? It was just so overwhelming. And from that moment on, my life was like that nonstop. Your life's just on fire. It's like you're holding onto a rocket and you're just trying not to do anything weird. So in the beginning, you're so on all the time, you, you're just about to explode. People want you every single minute to be working, every single minute on a talk show, every single minute doing a magazine shoot. You almost never sleep. You almost never have a minute to contract. Fame goes to your head. It goes to your ego. It does go to your head and you get a little crazy. But part of that is good because you do have to expand. Because all of us expand and contract to the degrees that we need to, to do what we have to. Run our business, be alone, be a mom, go to a school meeting, come home, go to sleep. We expand, we contract. But over time, you learn how to expand and contract. You also learn how to ask for help. But I got in the flow of it. And these lovely women, Faye Dunaway, took me to my premiere. One lady after the next, and these wonderful women helped me. I remember Diane Cannon came up to me and she said, you know what, honey, this is not gonna last forever. Stay in your gratitude. Say please and thank you. It's gonna just help you so much. And you know what? Good manners are really one of the keys to the universe. Just to be in your gratitude, just to understand the blessing of everything relieves so much stress and pressure in any situation. Being gracious and, and having gratitude is such a key to happiness. I remember when I did If These Walls Could Talk and my father had never been exposed conceptually to the real idea of what homosexuality was. And when I did If These Walls Could Talk, he was like, so those two old ladies, those aunts, those women that lived together in my town their whole lives were gay? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, they lived together for 45 years. They were gay? And I remember him sitting at the kitchen table, just this epiphany that was happening to him. It wasn't a prejudice. It was just a, an unknown. And once he got it and got that it wasn't threatening, that nothing bad was going to happen to him, that it has always been, it's not new. The only thing that's new is that we're moving the fear away. We're just letting the fear go. In 2001, at the height of her career, Sharon suffered a brain aneurysm while alone at home. For weeks, she fought to survive a brutal series of treatments and surgeries. 
this would only be the beginning of the worst chapter in her life. I felt like I'd been shot in the head, like it felt like two bullets hit my head. And the impact of it was so intense that it pushed me. And I reached like that and I fell. I fell over the sofa, I fell onto the coffee table and I shoved it and I fell so hard that everything went everywhere. The phone went, the, everything on the table went. I remember everything smashing and falling and the table skid and the sofa flew back. And I remember my head smashing onto the floor. And I, I remember laying there thinking, I'm having a stroke. I pulled the phone cord to me and I called my ex-husband. When he got home and I eventually got help, the doctor put me into a tube, I guess a kind of a CAT scan, and I, I was passing out, coming, going from consciousness. And when I came to, I was out of the scan and there was no one around. And the doctor was looking at me with such kindness that I knew I was fucked. He said, you're bleeding into your brain. I said, I better call my mom. And I said to the doctor, I can lose my ability to speak soon, right? And he, he was so sweet. And he just looked at me and he went, yes. And he reached in his pocket and he said, here's my phone. I think you should do this yourself. And I called my mom and I said, mom, I'm calling you from the emergency room. And she said, oh, honey. And I said, I'm having a brain hemorrhage. And she said, I'm on my way. I love you. Click. I was being wheeled down the hallway at one point on a gurney. And I woke up and I was like, what's going on? And this young, young intern said, I'm taking you to surgery. I'm like, what surgery? And he's like, brain surgery. I'm taking you to brain surgery. It's exploratory brain surgery. Are there any other options other than putting my head on the table? And they said, well, we could give you an angiogram. I'm like, what's that? Well, we cut you here and we put a camera up through and we take a look. Okay, so we did that and they realized that my vertebral artery had ruptured and was now hanging by a thread. And for this entire time, I'd been hemorrhaging into my back, my head, my face, my spine. And now my brain was shoved up into the front of my face. And the artery was just hanging by a thread and they had to make an instant decision. Everybody got together and they decided that the most advanced technique and the most modern thing was the 22 platinum coils in my head in replace of the artery. I woke up finding out that this is what had happened and then I had to learn to walk, hear, write, talk, remember, and everything all over again. I thought that I was dying for a long time. Even after I came home, there was a part of me that felt like, wow, I lost so much. My career was basically over. My family was over. I got divorced. My child was taken away. My a lot of my identity, I thought, I got down, down to it. And when I got down to it, it's like being a phoenix. 
I was burned. I was burned to the ground. Because everything that I had been before, I thought, I'm not any of those things anymore. It was like a death, but it's not a bad thing. You know, death isn't all it's cracked up to be. Everything got richer for me through this experience. Everything got better for me through this experience. And it was like starting over. Every death is a rebirth. After I had my brain hemorrhage, my ex-husband filed for divorce, married his girlfriend, and they sued me for custody of my son and won, which everyone knows. It's been in every newspaper in the world. But the most difficult thing I've ever done is the thing I'm still doing, which is parenting my oldest child, not having him live in my house full time. The most difficult thing I do is to do that joyfully, without grief, without anger, without revenge or any sort of negativity. The most difficult thing that I do is to do that from a place of joy, generosity, peace of mind, uh, patience, patience, patience. I always wanted to adopt kids. I knew whether or not I had children. I also really, I knew I would adopt. I have three boys. I have two more children that I adopted on my own. I had this sense of my children always. I had this a sense about them. I had a sense of a full house. As a mom, of course, I think my kids are the smartest, the funniest, the nicest, the most handsome. I try to let them know that they are all of those things. I try to let them know how loved that they are, that they're safe, and we focus pretty much on our joy, and we have a really good time. It's wonderful. I mean, my life is so improved by having children. It's fabulous. I have no lack of confidence about being a woman and my own womanly beauty. I don't believe that being 19 or 20 or 25 or 30 or 35, that any of these moments are the moment of ultimate beauty. I think that there's somewhere along the line, we started selling the, the idea that being a girl was the beauty. Don't we have goals about not just being boys and girls forever? Don't we want to be men and women? I want to be a woman. I don't want to be a girl. Being a girl was hard, you know? Fun. I had a great time. I see girls who were beautiful and young having a great time. Go. I don't want to be a girl anymore. Loved it. Love being a woman. I have no misunderstandings that there are things that are younger, that have their own appeal, that I no longer possess. I also have no misunderstanding that there are things about my womanness that you can't touch me. Because this woman thing, you'll see, this is very where it's at. I also have no misunderstanding that these women that are my elders really know something that I don't. And I know that this is the progression of it. And it is a 
an amazing journey that, guess what? It's meant to be. You know, I enjoy my own company. I remember years ago when I would go to black tie things by myself and people would look at me like I had three heads. I'd show up in a ball gown and no date. And they'd be like, what is she doing? I'm coming to the thing. Why do I have to drag up somebody to come with? It's like, if I have a date, I'd like it to be because I actually want to be with them because they're special to me. I want to wait till special comes along. I don't want to just drag somebody around. So I think it takes more self-awareness to be good with yourself. I guess I'm still waiting for my love of my life relationship or something. I don't know. I've had excellent relationships. I've had some really beautiful relationships in my life with some really extraordinary men, just wonderful. And I've had a couple of crappy ones, but I would have to say there is much on me because I, perhaps I chose them for not the best. I didn't do it. The, I don't know. I don't know if I would be one to really be passing out the relationship advice. <laughs> I think I would be the one to be hearing some relationship advice. <laughs> it has just been such a journey, painful, exhilarating. The people that I've met and the things, the kind of... It's just unbelievable. The camaraderie in this journey has been extraordinary. I love my career. I love my life. I love my family. I even love the people that burned me to the ground because they were my best teachers. You know, everybody says, I'd like to get rid of my anger. Well, you know, you're not going to get rid of your sense of humor. Why would you get rid of your anger? They're all qualities that we have. Life is not black and white. It's very many shades between black and white. It's so wonderful to be present, up to speed in my own life, and not know what kind of movies am I going to do next, what kind of teaching am I going to do next, what country am I going to next with my humanitarian work. I have no idea what's next. From the pinnacle of fame and fortune, through her brush with death and subsequent divorce, Sharon has arrived at this point in her life knowing that she is enough. She's a beautiful example of what can happen when, as she says, we stay in our gratitude and focus on the joy. Love that. Today, her remarkable energy is focused on her family, on living a meaningful life, and helping fight a disease that continues to ravage the world. And she says she will not stop until there is a cure for AIDS. Just another reason, Sharon Stone is a master. You know, after 20 years of being the global campaign chairman of the American Foundation for AIDS Research, I've spent a lot of time with people who are dying and do die, adults and children. I was an AIDS worker to a certain small but poignant degree before I started to work with AMFAR. I had gone to the Dominican Republic. I had been asked if I would come down and help 
with the children there who had AIDS, if I could help with some kind of awareness and the situation was very bad. So when I was in Cannes, we had, The Quick and the Dead was closing the film festival. And these Amphar dinners are usually towards the end of the film festival. The heads of it came and spoke to me and my then publicist, Cindy, and said, could you fill in for Elizabeth Taylor? She's unable to attend. No, it's a big ask to fill in for Elizabeth Taylor. You know, it's, it's like, wow. But then at the end of the evening, they asked me if I would stay for three years. And I said that I would. And at the end of three years, I said that I would stay until we found a cure. I went from a complete novice to a person who put on a hazmat suit and looked at the AIDS virus and to a person who studied with Nobel scientists. And this year in Cannes, we raised uh, 25 million euros in one night. It, it, it's sensational. It's sensational to see where we're getting to. It's extraordinary to see the way that people have changed their perspectives and to look back and see what Elizabeth Taylor did by standing up in Congress and saying, you know, that this is bullshit. We have to really look at each other with dignity and decency by taking off her jewelry and auctioning it off. I don't know, you know, when you stand up there in front of crowds and you're trying to raise money for AIDS and some wise ass in the audience says, hey, I'll give you $5,000 for your dress. And I say, okay, I have $5,000 for my dress. Will someone give me 10? You know what? You can't shame me. I'll go home in a tablecloth. To have purpose to my fame in this ancillary way is, it's, it's wonderful. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Masterclass, the podcast. You can follow Masterclass on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Masterclass podcast.